Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alex Andreu. More than at any point in my lifetime, the last few years have brought pretty profound reflection on leadership. What is it? How does it manifest itself? Is it a talent or a skill? In an age of binaries, as more and more countries divide down the middle with voters seeing the captain at their helm as either strong or wrong, Politics has ceased to be a conversation about solutions and has become a tug-of-war between polar opposite values. My guest today is Dr. Pippa Malmgren, co-author of the new book The Infinite Leader, along with entrepreneur and regular collaborator Chris Lewis. Dr. Malmgren's resume is so interesting and varied, it would probably take up two-thirds of this short podcast to list her achievements, so I have chosen a mere tantalising smattering. An economist by trade, Dr. Malmgren was chief currency strategist at UBS, has advised a veritable who's who of CEOs, investors and politicians, including President George W. Bush. She's the best-selling author of, among her many titles, The Seminal Signals. She's also a successful entrepreneur in her own right, co-founding, among her many projects, everything from advisory firms to robotics startups. Pippa, welcome to The Bunker. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Now, the central concept of your new book is infinite leadership, which is all about balancing competing and often conflicting priorities. So evidence versus instinct or micro versus macro, local versus global. Can you explain the concept to our listeners? Yes, indeed. We've been taught that if you're highly analytical, that's the key to success. And so many of our leaders are very good at logic and rationality and uh, numerical assessment, but they are failing us. And we are seeing leadership failures in every category of the world economy, from political organizations to religious organizations. There's, There's no area that's untouched. And the single biggest reason that CEOs are being forced out of office are ethical lapses in the last couple of years. Mm. So the problem is partly that they are not balanced and they are not using both sides of the brain. They're using the analytical rational, but not the imaginative creative. They're not balancing between many competing forces. They're focused on sort of one particular type of outcome, and that's resulting in their failure. Maybe Mm. I can put it really simply by saying, uh, quite often leaders think that what they're doing is picking a target, like let's say the top of Mount Everest and saying, let's go there. And they make a big plan and then they aim at the target. But in real life, the, the challenges are much more like surfing than like hiking. The target is not static, it's moving. And there are all these competing forces. So what you have to learn is how to balance in a conflicting environment. 
And that's really what the book is about. The the way I understood it, and forgive my clunky attempt at an analogy, it was a sort of management capoeira, you know? That, yeah, that, I love that. that. That by being in perpetual flowing movement, it becomes almost impossible to be knocked off your center. Is that, is that a fair assessment? If I might borrow that from you, because that is excellent. And I, oh, I you think can have it. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's exactly right. But what you've captured is that it's a quality of fluidity that is the crucial piece that so many leaders don't have. And what we found, what, you know, this book followed on a previous book called The Leadership Lab. And that one was very much about leadership in organizations. The infinite leader is much more about leadership as a personal thing. And each one of us exercises leadership in our daily lives. And if you want to be a good leader, you've just got to be fluid across many different kinds of situations and deal with many different types of forces. And that actually, personal leadership, we see exercised all the time. You, you might even see better leadership skills coming from the single parent in a sole breadwinner household than you might see from someone who's CEO of a corporation. Hmm. Now, this seems to me, I may be wrong, but it seems in sharp contrast with traditional notions of leadership qualities, like sort of sticking the course and persistence and doggedness and this, the sort of strength that comes from heft. You know, there's a sort of male quality to it. And it suggests a more fluid style. And I cannot help but reflect on the the relative success of female leaders in dealing with a COVID-19 crisis versus the perceived failings of traditional strongmen. Is this, is this a coincidence? So Chris and I spent a lot of time on this question of the male leader versus the female leader and the masculine qualities versus the feminine qualities. And course, now one's getting into dangerous territory, you know, delimit one versus the other. But think of it this way. On a piano keyboard, you have a lot of different notes. And at one end of that keyboard, you might have what we consider to be the very sort of masculine, bottom line, highly analytical goals like the profit and loss of the company, you know, the cost foundations. At the other end, you have things that we consider to be more feminine nature, which were things like trust and having uh, the community that you serve feel included in what you're doing. This is where you get brands, right? Brands are based on these more feminine qualities. And a really good leader is neither a man nor a woman in particular. It's a person who has the ability to play both ends of that keyboard when it's appropriate mm. and not just chopsticks at one end, but fluidly <laughs> move across that keyboard as is appropriate and necessary to the circumstances. But yes, we concluded that all of the studies are showing that feminine qualities, and I use it advisedly, so not female leaders, but because the best male leaders have this quality as well. Mm, the mm. feminine qualities are about uh, feelings rather than fact. They're about community rather than I. Now, as I understand it, from the, from the interviews and articles I have read, you're in a school of thought that had been 
worried by a sort of stagnation and slow decline in Europe and America that accepted, for instance, slow growth, that accepted inevitable Chinese domination. And you saw Trump and Brexit as catalysts that had the potential to shake things up. And that's not, you know, that's an honourable philosophical position. Now, along comes COVID-19 and kicks over the table. Is there any part of you that thinks the combination of unpredictable leaders with such a volatile landscape has the potential to be a complete disaster? Well, I don't. And the reason is because of the one of the core messages in the book is leadership is not always that other person over there. It's you. And so you can exercise leadership. And I think that is what we are witnessing all over the world. People are making decisions about how to respond to the combination of the economic slowdown and COVID. And they are, you know, related, but, but different. And actually what I'm impressed by is how well people are coping, how they're radically changing their business models, their career plans, they're reconfiguring their lives. They're reprioritizing how they use their time. Now, there are different categories. So some people are in a very privileged position and have a lot of latitude to make these changes. Yeah. Some people are getting knocked off the, the world economy and lo literally losing their foothold. And it's going to be hard for them to get back onto it. And there's a need to help the, those people and to support that community. But... What I see is an incredible unleashing of entrepreneurial initiative, um, forward thinking. Uh, people are making changes that previously were impossible, and now they've done it. Yuval Hariri, who wrote Sapiens, was interviewed, and he said, for, for a decade, we tried to move some of the coursework of universities online, <laughs> and now in three months, we moved the entire university online. And this incredible transformation brings a huge amount of promise with it. So I actually think that the terrible circumstances are bringing out the best leadership qualities that exist. Hmm. They're certainly acting as an accelerator for uh, trends that were already present. I think that everyone accepts that. On the European Union, there was a sense before Brexit that it might... Uh, hastened the, the increasing lack of cohesion uh, in the EU. It appears to have done the opposite, right? The EU27, in my 30 years of, of experience reporting on them, have never uh, seemed more united, and the EU project has never been more popular, actually, among people when, when they're being polled. Why, why is this, do you think? Why, why has this pushed the EU actually into cohesion and action rather than indecision and dithering, which, which to be fair, used to be their, their natural fallback. Yeah, so before we even get into that, let's step back and say, you know, part of your question is rooted in the um, assumption that some models will succeed and some models will fail. And I, I noticed that during the Brexit debate, you know, I was often asked, you know, which will succeed, Britain post-Brexit or the EU? 
why can't it be both? That both do well. They're very different business models, very different political models. I mean, we have, you know, over 170 countries and many of them succeed at the same time. So it's not binary. And I think this comes down to something I talked about in my book, Signals, which is there's always a social contract. That's the deal between the state and the citizens and among the citizens. And the social contract in Europe is very different than it is in the UK or in the US or or even in Japan or China. And I think there are many versions of the social contract and they can work in their own environment where people buy into the deal. And this is one of the big issues that caused Brexit is the British were not as prepared to buy into what the European Union was offering as the social contract. But within Europe, there's tremendous support for that. And similarly, I remember when uh, President Obama was running for office and there was a big headline that, you know, Europeans loved President Obama and Americans didn't love him so much. And that's because the social contract that he likes is beautiful in France and not so popular in Texas. And the thing is, the world is going to be full of competing social contract models. It doesn't mean any one of them is right or any of them are wrong. They're just different. Now, another concept to which you keep returning in The Infinite Leader is that of fragility. In your view, too much attention has been paid in business being efficient, that resilience has been neglected, and the pandemic has laid this weakness bare. How do we go forward? How do we build resilience into Uh, business models which are too often preoccupied with the short term. Indeed. Uh, And it's I love the analogy from Formula One race car driving, which is in that sport, every single day they deconstruct the car and they try to remove one gram of weight. And that one gram may be the key to winning the race, but it also may be the one thing that causes the car to break apart. (laughs) And you just don't know which single one gram is going to be the one that wins or leads to a catastrophic outcome. (laughs) It's a constant testing. And I think they're testing resilience versus efficiency. What we were doing prior to COVID is assuming that the removal of that one gram, the creation of any efficiency gains was without cost. And what we discovered was the the catastrophe point, which we hit. So now we need a better balance between the two. And as as a practical example, prior to COVID, the analysts looking at any publicly listed business would be very critical of any company that kept cash on hand. I mean, it was just considered a waste. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Back to the shareholders. Now everyone realizes having some cash on hand is probably wise, (laughs) Um, right? So this is the thing. We're recalibrating our understanding of efficiency versus resilience, and that's, I think, a very good thing. It it sounds a little bit like a a sort of related concept to uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb's anti-fragility, right? Mm -hmm. this, uh, This idea that that there isn't just fragile and robust, there's also a state of being fragile enough to be flexible. Indeed. Uh, And I love his work. And I think a lot of this comes from 
not practical things, but from a mindset. And one of the themes we talk about in the book is this, the infinity symbol itself and how quite often, and we use the, the term zero, as you, you've seen in the book quite a lot. So one of the themes is whenever you look and you see nothing, you see zero, like zero leadership, zero money, zero opportunity. You're thinking mm. there's just a dead end in front of you. And so many people have this feeling today. And it's a sort of hopeless space. But if you look at that zero, not as a number, but as a symbol, it's a circle that signifies wholeness and uh, the infinite and eternity and timelessness. And then you basically reconfigure, reframe how you're looking at the problem. You twist it. This is the leadership skill is to turn it in a way that now it's not a circle anymore. It's the infinity symbol. And, and I know that sounds so simplistic, but this is, a, this is like an ancient leadership task of how to turn a seeming nothing into something. Mm. And in fact, we have more capacity to do that these days than ever before. And we quote Bucky Fuller, the famous designer, who yes. said in the 1920s that one of the laws of nature we're seeing now is you can do ever more with ever less. He called it ephemeralization. And this has only increased with technological advances. So, so the leader's key job is this imaginative, imaginal capacity rather than the bottom line numerical aspect. To see the symbol, not the number. The Reverend Theodore Hasburg uh, once remarked that you can't blow an uncertain trumpet which I really like. I think it's very elegant. It occurs to me that so much attention is paid to the strength of the message. Leaders like Trump and Johnson often appear to pay little attention to the overall tune they're playing. What I mean is that there seems to be such an obsession with swagger and appearing certain and not tentative that, that I'm often left with the impression more thought has gone into how things are announced rather than what they actually are. How do we get out of that um, vicious circle? It's such an interesting observation and totally true. My experience in politics is that much more effort goes into the delivery of the message than the content of the message very, very often. Um, and some of the female leaders that we've seen in the last two years have been much better at saying, we just don't know yet, or uh, making an announcement, but leaving a lot of latitude to, we're going to try this, and then we're going to see, and we're going to come back to you and let you know. And this, I think, is very promising, um, because our, our, you know, our view in, in both the Leadership Lab and the Infinite Leader is that the one thing that grounds you in mediocrity is certainty. Whenever you're saying, I know, we know you don't. So, <laughs> and, and especially now where, where nobody knows. I mean, if you ask any expert on COVID, the first thing they'll say is we just don't have the data. We just don't have the data. We don't know. So given that we don't know, why do we pretend that we do? And I think this is what the public is hungry for. The media is very critical of leaders who aren't certain, but I think the public is very tolerant of leaders who say, 
We don't know, but we're going to find out and let's, let's try this. Um, and that's an interesting division between the public and the media. In the book, you suggest there, there's a model for identifying behaviors which are egocentric and damaging by finding a balance along two axes, right? So, so the, the listeners need to imagine an X uh, where on one side of the line is me and on the other is we, and then the second line is talking and listening, and that somewhere in the balance between those four points there is there is a healthy leadership style now the problem is the problem is that culturally in every setting in business in politics in communities in the church we tend to reward the talking me the egotist you know some studies suggest even the sociopath they are better at rising to the top How can you apply your model to ensure that we push the right leaders to the top rather than just using it as a diagnostic tool of, of a top that's gone wrong, if that makes sense? Yeah, no, exactly. And it's interesting that when you start to look at psychopaths, the most common job title a psychopath has is CEO. Yes, <laughs> there was a big study in Canada, wasn't there? Yeah, it's so interesting. Um, And psychopaths are very interested in those kinds of top leadership jobs. And part of it is because of the way we train and educate people. So, for example, you think about what do we get scored for? What do we get points for? And, and what do we get nothing for? So we get a lot of points for the right answers, but nothing really for empathy. We get scores for passing exams, but not for teaching others. Hmm. Uh, we get a lot of scores for deduction, right? But not for determination. And a lot for action, but not so much for endurance. And so this is a, we're basically training people to exercise psychopathic leadership. Hmm. We're not training people to exercise empathetic leadership. And so surprise, surprise, who's in charge, something's got to change. Yeah. How, how does it change? I mean, I mean, practically, how do we promote the people that embody the better leadership qualities? Well, that's exactly what this whole book is about. And we go through and list all of the different uh, sort of verticals, like, for example, specialists versus all-rounders. And why is it that we always think that the specialist is the one to promote, not the person who's an all-rounder? Or why is it that we don't value, for example, the more spiritual qualities in some of our leaders, which are very apparent and palpable? We talk a lot about how leaders always have a to-do list, but what they really need is a to-be list, because people will feel the authenticness of your spiritual commitment to what you're doing. And if it isn't there, they won't follow you as much. Mm. So it's just a question of revaluing things. And again, understanding that this is not a cost to the bottom line. This improves performance dramatically. Um, and this diversity of thinking, which is really what we're talking about. Yeah, that's a, that's a performance accelerator, not a drag that slows you down. 
Mm. Fascinating. Um, Pippa, time has flown away. I cannot let you go uh, without asking for your prediction of the upcoming <laughs> US election. I know you said Trump might win. Of course he might win. It's a you know, it's a two-horse race. Um, but what do you think will actually happen? Well, first, uh, I think there's, if we know who wins, then we also know that half the country won't like them. So in one, on one level, either way, half the country won't like the leader. Mm. Uh, if we don't know who's won, because let's say the president challenges the outcome or the Democrats challenge the outcome, or we have another recount of the ballots. Then the whole country is unhappy. Yeah, then the whole country, <laughs> the whole world is unhappy. And let's face it, we also now have all the senior politicians in Washington are coming down with COVID in a hurry. We could end up with the candidate is in the hospital with COVID when they're elected. Um, there, there's loads of possible uncertain outcomes, and those are the ones that I are most interesting and important. But if we at least know who wins, I suspect things will start to go back to normal. Uh, you know, people will go back to work. They may not like Trump if he wins, but they'll just get on with their lives. I don't see that a Democrat or a Republican win either way produces such a hugely definitive outcome, because even the Democrats don't know what their policies will really be. They have a big internal fight they're going to have to have between the far left and the middle about what exactly are we going to implement. And that may take a year or two. It's, an, it's a nice try at filibustering me, but I'm going to have to press you for a prediction, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think at this point, um, I could see I could see Trump winning the popular vote and the Democrats winning the Electoral College, which means the Democrats... So the reverse, the reverse of what happened last time. Yeah. Mm. Dr. Pippa Malgren, um, it has been a, a, an educational half hour. Thank you so much for giving up your time. Thank you. The Infinite Leader, Balancing the Demands of Modern Business Leadership by Chris Lewis and Pippa Malgren is out now. And listeners, remember there's a new Bunker Daily every Monday, Tuesday, Thursday and Friday mornings with a longer weekly episode featuring a full panel every Wednesday. So don't forget to subscribe, review and rate us. And please consider supporting us on the funding platform Patreon, where you can search for the Bunker podcast. As ever, keep socially distant but emotionally available. This is Alex Andreu in the Bunker saying over and out. Bunker Daily was presented by Alex Andreu. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold. And audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.